0: Something that uh, all of us who have been parents experience at one point or another as we are instructing our children in, in things that they need to do, maybe to pick up their toys or uh, other commands that we issue them that we want instant obedience to. Isn't that what we want, parents? We just want to issue the command and for our kids to do. But inevitably, they reach an age where you give them a command and you get the why questions, right? Pick up your toys. Why? Eat your vegetables. Why? I don't like them. You know, it's on and on. Things like don't eat the dog's food. But why? You know. Then they get a little older, and you're trying to tell them do your math homework. But but why do I need to do math? I don't. I have a calculator. Why on earth do I need to figure these things out longhand? I'm still asking that particular question today. We get a job, and then we have bosses who begin to. Give us orders that they're expecting us to follow through immediately. And we still have that tendency within us. We want to know why. Give me a reason. Give me the motivating factor as to why I need to do a particular thing. We all need that. We, we, we need the motivation for uh, the, this aspect of obeying instructions. What's the result? What's in it for me if I do what you tell me to do? Ultimately, that's what our young kids want to know. What's in it for me for doing what you said, whether it's to pick up our toys or to eat our vegetables? One of the great things I think that you've already discovered and will continue to discover as we look at these lessons from the father to the son in Proverbs is that the father isn't just barking out commands for the son to follow. He's not just spitting out instruction and giving them facts and details He actually provides for the son the motivating reasons on why he should follow in the ways of wisdom. He provides the necessary motivation to compel the son's obedience. Because Solomon understands that that to stay on the path of righteousness, it's hard. To, To follow lady wisdom is not going to be easy because there's going to be a lot of things along the way to try to trip the son up in his pursuit of obeying the father's teachings and commandments, and to try to stay on the right path. So, in order to train him on the ways of wisdom, he's going to motivate him. He's going to provide sufficient motivation to compel that obedience. And we're going to see that pretty clear in our passage today. And as we read through it, uh, some of you may start getting PTSD in terms of thinking of your prosperity gospel days, perhaps. So, some of you might read this and go, Is Proverbs teaching a prosperity gospel of sorts? Like, what's in here? Well, Maybe. We'll find out, right, when we get through it today. But there's a definite pattern to this lesson, and I want you to see that. There are six sections to it. We're going to tackle it uh, in three parts here. But there's six clear sections here that alternate between admonitions and motivations. And the odd, verse, uh, the odd verses are going to be the admonitions, the, the command, the instructions, 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11. And the even verses are going to provide for us the motivations, Okay, those verse numbers were not there in the, in the original language here, but they've been provided to us by the translators, and it just kind of works out that way. So it's going to be really easy for us to see that today. All right, so we are in the third chapter, and we are going to look at the first 12 verses. Here are the words of the living God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with all the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. These are the words of the Lord. One of the first things I want us to look at here is the motivation for preserving the father's teaching. One of the most important facets that you're going to see in this passage is the emphasis placed on the heart. In fact, this passage blows away the common and cheap worldly philosophy that passes as wisdom today that tells you to just follow your heart. I don't know what to do in life. Just follow your heart. I don't know if I should marry this gal. Just follow your heart. Should I take this job? Just follow your heart, right? Just follow your heart. You see it everywhere. Follow your heart as if your heart contains everything you need to guide you through life and keep you on the right path. That cheap mantra of just following your heart assumes that our heart knows what's best for us and can direct the course of our life. One big problem, though. God's word has a lot to say about the human heart and about the condition of our heart. And that from God's vantage point, the heart is far from a reliable guide for us. Now, from the Hebrew perspective, because it's important to understand, the heart was just, it was much more than just emotions and feelings. When we talk about the heart nowadays, that's kind of what we are talking about. To go with our feelings, to go with where our emotions are guiding us, but From the Hebraic point of view and perspective and understanding, the heart was more than emotions and feelings. It also involved understanding, the will, intellect, all of those things. Wisdom dwelled in the heart. Everything came from the heart. They didn't have a concept uh, for the brain. So all of the intellectual activities were ascribed to the heart along with emotions like joy and sadness, even fear. The heart is the center of the emotional and intellectual life. It's where you make choices that are directed and motivated by your desires. Your heart is where your affections are centered. Which is why we talk about the desires of the heart. The heart is the center of all the parts of human existence. So when you see that word heart, especially in Proverbs, it means all of that and more. So much so that in um, Proverbs 4.23, you have this instruction. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? Because from it flow all of the springs of life, all of the issues of life. Everything emanates from the heart. So take care of it, guard it, protect it, preserve it. But Jeremiah has this to say about our heart. He says that it's fundamentally broken. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who? So the heart, rather than being a faithful compass for life, something faithful and reliable to guide us by, God's Word says that it's a terrible guide, a miserable one. Following your heart's desire can lead you to ruin. Ruin. James the Apostle of the Lord, reminds us that our hearts our heart lusts after and desires what we want but do not have James chapter four that our heart has sinful cravings, and this is why we murder because we covet and we, we want, but we don 't have it. James calls this kind of follow your heart philosophy not something that that comes from above, not wisdom from above, but something that 's earthly, unspiritual. And demonic even. And that leads to disorder in every vile practice. James chapter 3. So what hope do we have for the human heart? Well, we see it laid out in scripture that the only hope is for the total renewal of the heart. Our hearts need to be circumcised, right? The, the sinful aspects of our heart need to be, to be cut our way. And, and our hearts need to be trained to love the Lord and obey the Lord. Ezekiel expresses that hope prophetically as a new heart and a new spirit that God would put within his people. A heart of flesh, a heart that is softened to the Lord, a heart that has the indwelling spirit of God that causes us to obey God's word. Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah declares that God would make a new covenant with his people and that he would write his law upon the tablet of the human heart. He would inscribe it upon the human heart. It would be. Found there, It would no longer be external to his people, but internal and in the heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. Only then could God's people obey from the heart and receive the blessings of obedience. So when you see the heart here and you see the the instructions and exhortations to guard your heart and preserve these teachings in your heart and to write them on the tablet of your heart, understand what's being asked of here. That internal to the, to, to the human nature is sinful cravings and desires that are contrary to the law of God. And if you follow your heart and don't follow the commandments of the Lord, you're not going to go on the path of life, but on the path that leads to destruction. So the admonition begins in the, with the typical introduction. It is from the father to the son. Again, this is Solomon writing to his son, teaching his son the ways of wisdom, how to uh, conduct himself as, as, as uh, royalty, how to conduct himself as a covenant child of God, a recipient of the promises of God in line for the monarchy even. But Solomon, in all of these lessons, is not just concerned with the son just memorizing uh, the father's teachings and commandments and just, just the head knowledge that he's able to regurgitate them at a moment's notice. He's concerned with the transmission of not only human this wisdom information, but the internalization of all of his teachings. So again, not just head knowledge, but, but a heart possession of these truths. He pleads like he did in the first two lessons for the son to not forget his teachings, to not forsaken, forsake them, not to ignore them, right? But to faithfully keep them, to guard them, to protect them. Obedience will come from the heart that hides and treasures the father's commands and teachings. We talked about that a lot in our last lesson. The Father's teaching isn't just to be remembered intellectually. It has to be faithfully kept. You and I remember what's most important to us. That's why there's a moral component to all of these lessons of the Father. If you have a child who always forgets to do his homework or forgets to do their chores that you've told them a million times to do, yet they can remember how to find their favorite program on a streaming platform or remember lyrics to a song. They don't have a memory problem. They have a moral problem. It's a heart problem. It's an obedience problem. And this is at the heart of what what Solomon's getting at here. In verse 3, you see he says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Those words, steadfast love and faithfulness are covenant words, but they're being substituted for the Father's teachings and commandments. It's the same thing, and you'll see that in chapter 6 and chapter 7 again, where, where the Father's instructing the Son to take His teachings and His commandments and to bind them around His neck and write them on the tablet of the heart again. The focus is on the internalization of the Father's words and commands. Hide them in there. Put them in there. Lock them away. Treasure them. Store them. Bind them around your neck as as a necklace to protect you and to guide you. The word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. We get the word kindness also from there. It speaks of fidelity. These things are not to depart from him. He has to have them deep within his heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're familiar with this verse, 8 and 9, where God instructs his people what to do with his law. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, he tells his people. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's extreme, isn't it? Take the law of God. Write them out, slap them on the doorpost of your home. So the moment you walk up to your house on the front door, the law of God is smacking you right in the face. Like you're always going to be confronted with it. You you bind it to your wrist. You bind it to your forehead. You don't let it go. It's frontlets for your eyes. It's all you see. It's what directs your life continually. These words are to be committed to memory, and then the will is to be conformed to them. A look at the motivation attached now to that preservation of key, of the father's teachings and commands. Is a reward for the son's obedience. And what's that reward? Long life and peace. Well, that's a pretty good reward, isn't it? Now, if your life is miserable, maybe that doesn't sound too good. But this is talking about something good here: long life and peace. Peace is the Hebrew word shalom and it means peace but it means a whole lot more than that as well it means prosperity success the uh, general welfare carries a sense of completeness and wholeness in life and for the israelites who were in covenant with the lord long life was a mark of god's blessing indeed it is what god promised his people in the covenant he made with them in deuteronomy 440 this was contingent upon Their obedience to to God's law. He says, therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Right, That promise for them was the land that God is promising you. If you're obedient, you're going to have a successful long life in that land it would yield what it's supposed to yield you'll be blessed during your sojourn there during your time there in fact it's the same promise that's attached to the fifth commandment right honor your father and mother in essence here honor the fathers teachings and commandments so that your days may be long in the land that the lord your god has given you exodus 20:12 you see how that's tied there A connection is being drawn between how well the son listens to and keeps the father's teachings and commandments and the outcome of his life. A direct connection there. What happens in the son's life is directly related to how he responds to his father's teachings and instruction. If he keeps them, there's a blessing. Long life and peace, this shalom in the land. What's the point? Is that really long life? Like, am I going to live to 120? Well, the point here is that wisdom, obeying God's instruction, obeying God's word, will, will add both to the quality and quantity of your life. It's promised there. Wisdom will bring you, he says, your favor and a good reputation before God and men going to add years to your life, but more importantly, it's going to add life to your years. There is a blessing in obedience. Sometimes we get really hung up, right? Because again, we believe salvation is by grace through faith. This is a gospel of grace that sometimes we diminish the importance or aspect of obedience in the Christian life as if it is divorced from some of the promises of God. Now, if you're in Christ, your disobedience isn't going to remove you from salvation. Now, God is going to be continually working by His Spirit in you to sanctify you and produce holiness in you. But let's not forget that there are promises attached to our obedience. Things go generally better in our life when we obey the Lord, do they not? That shouldn't surprise us. Like, that's not a... That's not like some, wow, that's some great revelation, Dan. No, God's Word tells us that over and over again. And that's not just an Old Testament thing, that's a New Testament thing as well. Now, I'll expand a little bit more on that shortly here, but I want you to see that it's tied to the obedience here. The ancient Hebrews didn't have a complete understanding of eternal life. We have a much fuller revelation of eternal life. For them, eternal life was... It's the land. It's, the, it's those land promises. It's the covenant that God made with Abraham and, and the one renewed in the Mosaic covenant. And then given to, to David and his progeny, right? They're going to inhabit the land. God's kingdom is going to be established there. That land will be fruitful and it will yield. It's the land overflowing with milk and honey and all the good things. But it was always contingent upon their obedience. If they disobeyed God, they would be vomited out of the land. Eventually, that happened, didn't it? But God fulfilled his end of the bargain. So when you see that here, that for them, that's the mark of God's blessing. They're in the land that God promised to them. And they're going to have a long life there enjoying that. But we, with the full revelation of the mystery of Jesus Christ, we know that in Christ we've been given that new heart. We have new affection. We have new desires. We have God's law written on our heart. What Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied about has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So we understand that we can have hope for a good life now. Like I believe and I'm following Christ. I can have a good life now. We'll define good life. But it's a better life than being apart from Christ, isn't it? Being dead in our trespass and sins. That's not a good life. But I know that what I've been promised is not my best life here now but my best life that will come later and forever. The presence of trials and adversity and suffering in this life are not signs that we are out of favor with God because we already have shalom. That shalom is Christ Jesus. He is our peace. In Him, we have life and peace and have that promise of eternal life. We have grace with God. We have favor with God. And consequently, if we live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, with the favor of the Lord, we're walking in His ways, others will see what God has done in us and what is God, God is doing through us. So we have favor with God and with man, generally true with man. So let's look now at this motivation for whole heart devotion. Let's continue here, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Again, uh, this is one of the promises that, I mean, so many people claim, uh... Who are seeking God's direction for their life, there's a reason this is one of the most treasured verses and most memorized verses in all of the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Probably one of the first verses that I memorized as as a young Christian, and many of you did as well. But let's look at that admonition here first Trust in the Lord a phrase we see repeated throughout scripture. We see it over and over again in the Psalms. We see it in Proverbs a number of times as well. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? What is trust? Ultimately, trust is about having full confidence in something or in someone. To say, I trust you, means I am fully confident in you. You ever do those trust fall exercises? You know, like little team-building things, which sometimes kind of foolish. I know I've dropped a person now and again, and they have dropped me <clears throat> over the years, right? But the, what's the whole concept behind that, right? I trust that that person behind me is going to fully support me and, you know, catch me so I don't crack my head open, all right? That, that's kind of, in essence, what's, it, what's in view here, trusting in the Lord. He's to have full confidence in the Lord, not, not full confidence in some inherited tradition of the father or some stale, you know, impersonal code of ethics here. But the son is to have full confidence in Israel's covenant-keeping God. That's who he's supposed to trust in. Trusting in the Lord. It's based on a, a, a sense of security in God. Faith in God. Faith in God's promises. Because here's what's important. This teaching is only as good as God's ability to do what he says he's going to do. If the son does this, here is what the covenant keeping God does. If you keep these aspects of the covenant, here is what God has covenanted to do. He backs up his promises. Some Hebrew scholars have noted that this Hebrew word we translate as trust originally had the idea of someone lying face down on the ground, okay? Face down in a, in a helpless, defenseless position where God has to have your back because you're completely helpless, right? That's what's in view here. Uh, a dependence, a complete dependence upon God to protect you, especially in the face of danger. He needs to trust in the Lord wholeheartedly, isn't he? Trust in the Lord with your heart, with all your heart, It is an all-of-life commitment to trusting the Lord. There's no room here for a divided heart. For for split emotions in terms of trusting the Lord. A heart that sometimes trusts in the Lord and at other times doesn't. Or a heart that only trusts in the Lord in, in these specific areas of life. But these are out of bounds and out of limits of trusting in the Lord. God demands an undivided commitment to Himself. Embedded here is also an aid to teach us how to trust the Lord. Because immediately that would be what I know. Well, if that's the case, how do I trust the Lord? How do I do that in my life? And the first key is what's done here. Immediately, it's contrasted with what we usually trust in. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? In the ne- a negative command here. Do not lean to your own understanding. Why? Because instead of trusting in the Lord, who do I normally trust in then? Ourselves. 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 Do not lean on your own understanding. We are to trust God exclusively. There's no place for me to then put trust in myself over and against trust in God, thinking that I know better than God. This word lean means to support, to support yourself. So we're to lean on the Lord and not lean on ourselves. We're to trust in the Lord and not trust in ourselves. And, and you know, when, when you think of lean, right, it's, it's, it's support. Like I can put, I can lean a little bit on this pulpit to support me, right? But only to a certain extent, right? If I put my whole weight against this pulpit, it will topple over. I can't trust this to fully support me. But I can look to something else. Maybe I can lean against that concrete block wall right there. Right? If I put my full weight on that, I trust that it's going to support me. And this is the view here about God. God is the immovable pillar, the immovable rock that we can fully lean on, put our complete weight upon because we know He can support it. But in and of myself, I cannot support, place that kind of weight of support upon myself, upon my own intellect, my own wisdom, and my own understanding because it's not a good support at all. The Lord is the only one we can fully lean on. Solomon is teaching his son that only by trusting in the Lord wholeheartedly and exclusively can he truly walk in the way and will of the Lord. Think about that. What is the problem with leaning on our own understanding? We don't know as much as God does, do we? Oh, wow. I hope that wasn't a shock to you. (laughs) We don't, right? We don't. We have limited wisdom. We have limited understanding, limited insight. Like, we don't, we cannot see every aspect to a situation or decisions that we're going to make. We certainly don't know the future. We don't even know what the next minute will bring us. Our hearts also have all sorts of muddled desires right within us that play into the decisions we make when we lean on our own understanding. It's like leaning on a broken crutch. Not a good thing. Bruce Walkey writes this in regards to that passage. One is a fool to rely on his thimble of knowledge before its vast ocean or on his own understanding, which is often governed by irrational urges that he cannot control. You see that? We have a thimble of knowledge and we think I can lean on that. That's all I need, my own understanding, My, my own reasoning, my own human reasoning, and I can figure it out and chart that course for my life. When God's knowledge is a limitless ocean, a vast ocean of wisdom. When we make decisions without even considering the Lord, we are leaning on our own understanding. See, that's our default mode. It's always been our default mode. To rely upon our own wisdom, our own understanding, our own insight, our own thoughts, our own inclination, our own desires. How many Christians, too many Christians, make crucial life decisions on on marriage, on employment, on moving to another state, on their finances. Not based on trusting in the Lord. Not based on what God's word has revealed concerning a situation, but strictly on their feelings. I'm going to follow my heart. God's not even in the picture when it concerns those decisions. I can't tell you how many Christians I have counseled over the years where this is the story of their life. God didn't, that God, those decisions, God didn't even come into play. I didn't even think about God. I didn't think about what pleases God. I didn't really think about what effect or impact it would have spiritually on my life. And their life is in shambles. And now they're like, oh, what's going on? Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. That's what God thinks of our own mind when we trust in it. When we lean on our own understanding and do not trust in the Lord. We all have done this. I'm not, I'm certainly not. Without excuse here. Let me exhaust my own understanding. Let me pull from my own intellectual framework. Let me reason this out completely, you know, and then when I'm at the end of all that, I'll turn to the Lord. Well, that, that's not the way this works. I'm to trust in the Lord with all of my heart and not lean on my own understanding. This past weekend on my family vacation here, uh, we whitewater rafted the Upper Okoe River in Tennessee. Awesome experience, I highly recommend that. Um, it was fantastic, but it was a pretty intense course. There's five miles of rapids, class three, class four rapids, one or two of them were probably class five. Uh, there's a quarter mile section of that that was part of the 1996. Olympic competition of whitewater rafting. Pretty intense. In fact, a couple of features there are called Godzilla and Humongous, if that doesn't tell you anything about there. All right? I'm going to tell you, your butt cheeks are clenched as you're doing that. All right? It's intense. All right? Uh, I'm not a young spring chicken anymore, but we had an awesome team and and an awesome guide. But I could not imagine on my best day with my mind as sharp as it could possibly be with my abilities to troubleshoot, uh, analyze, assess situations, maybe figure out. I could not imagine using my own understanding and reason to try to navigate that river without a guide. And not just without a guide, without a skillful guide who knows absolutely every rock in that, in that river, knows exactly how to maneuver around it, can tell us when to paddle, when to backstroke, you know, when to, you know, take cover under the boat so you don't get popped out of it. I couldn't imagine doing it without a guide. But that's exactly what many of us do with our life. We want to navigate through this life with our own understanding, I will figure it out. I don't need God to tell me anything about my life or how to live my life. I'm going with my gut. Well, your gut is garbage. Your reasoning is foolish, and I'm not the one saying that. God's Word is saying that. We can't go through life like that, brothers and sisters. We will shipwreck. We will make ruin of our life, and many have. And I think we can all point to Parts of our life where that has been true. Where we, we've neglected to trust in the Lord this way. To, and we've leaned on upon our, our own intellect. And, and our life has gone off, off in complete ways. In relationships. In our finances. In, in our careers. And in so many other things in life. We don't have enough knowledge to figure this stuff out on our own without consulting the Lord. We just don't. Not to mention consulting other godly people in our life. The wise person does not lean on their own understanding. But trusts that God knows best and that his way is best. So I ask you, is God's revealed word your ultimate authority for truth? Or do you assume that your limited human reasoning and knowledge is the last word concerning your life? What you believe about that will take you down two very different paths in life. So not only are we to trust in the Lord wholeheartedly and exclusively, we are also to trust Him extensively. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Look at that. All. Say all. All your ways, right? There's no dimension of our life that is outside of the realm of trusting God wholeheartedly and exclusively. That means I don't just acknowledge him and trust in him concerning spiritual matters. But all physical matters are on me. No, that's not what it says here, right? All your ways, every aspect of life. We're to trust him in how we run our families, our finances, our careers, our relationships, our education, our church, everything. We need his counsel, not just in the big decisions of life, but in the day-to-day stuff as well. Why do we get to the place, brothers and sisters, where we think, I'm only going to consult God for the big stuff in life? As if He doesn't care or He's not attentive to the little things in our life. All means all, all of our ways. Every element of your life. There is not one outside of that where we need to trust Him and acknowledge Him. No matter too small for God's attention. Isn't that good news? That's good news. There's nothing too small that I, that I can't come to God with. Nothing at all. and nothing that requires our full dependence and confidence in Him in every way. That word acknowledges is, is a Hebrew word "to know, yada," to know God. It's an intimate, personal knowledge. In all your ways, know the Lord. In all your ways, be aware of the Lord. Why? Because, we, because if we know the Lord well, because we have a covenant relationship with God through Christ, because we know what would please Him, because He's the focus and occupation and affection of my mind and heart, I can trust Him wholeheartedly, exclusively, and extensively. And here's the motivation. He will make straight your paths. Smooth and straight is the implication here. He will remove the obstacles in our life that trip us up and cause us to stumble. This is what He does. This is what He does. Oh, I know. We know life doesn't always work out nice and neat, does it? But there's things you and I do not even know of that are obstacles in our path that are going to stumble, make stumble and trip us up, but that God has removed those things when we've been obedient to trust Him this way and to acknowledge Him. We have no idea. Maybe on the other side of eternity, right, we'll get a, a, some glimpse of that, and God will show us. You see all these things right here? You were able to sidestep all of those things. I made your path straight. I made your path straight. This promise here lies at the heart of what we all want. We want to know God's will, don't we? You want to know God's will for your life? Yeah, we all want to know. God, what do you want me to do? What is your will for my life? The problem is some want this promise of the straight path without following the admonitions that lead to that promise. We want to know God's will for our life. But it starts with trusting Him wholeheartedly. With all of your heart. Acknowledging Him in all of your ways. It doesn't happen any other way apart from that. If you're leaning on your own understanding, how will you know the will of God? Well, it's it's impossible. When making a decision, do you take time to consider what pleases the Lord? Do you take time to consider what His Word has to say concerning the matter? Are your thoughts centered around the Lord and what pleases the Lord and what, and, and, and what God would approve of as His Word makes clear to us in so many areas of life? See, when we're doing that, our paths are being made straight. I've always said this. I stumble more into the will of God than I know it if, if my heart is inclined to trusting in the Lord. And not my own understanding. And I'm acknowledging him. And I'm considering him. And all of those things are are going on. My heart's desire is to please the Lord. He's making straight my paths. I can make choice. That's why I don't have to have uh, analysis paralysis and decision making. Is this God's will? Is it not God's will? No. If my desire is to please the Lord. To honor the Lord. to, To do what his word tells me to do. That's all I need. That's all you need. That's all you need. Too many Christians get paralyzed this way. Well, first of all, if you don't know God's Word, you're always going to be paralyzed in decision-making. Like, that's a non-starter immediately. You have no choice but to lean on your own understanding. And you know where that will take you. But if God's Word's in your heart, you treasure it, you're keeping it, you're, 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 you want to do it, you love it, you meditate upon it. Well then, my goodness, what an advantage you have in this area to know the will of God. Why? Because you're just... You're just stepping out and making decisions to honor the Lord. And He will make smooth and straight your paths. When you're doing it the way it's outlined here, and not just following your heart, you can be assured you're moving in the direction of the straight paths. You can be. You can confidently do that. We don't always know where the outcome of these things are going to take us. But we're trusting that God is orchestrating all things. That the steps of the righteous are ordered of the Lord. That he is directing our paths. It's important to know that. Does this teach a prosperity gospel in this aspect? I'll answer that more in a moment. (laughs) But that promise is there. And I believe it. Look at this further teaching the Father gives the Son in 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Look at that. Be not wise in your own eyes. What does that mean? Don't be a know-it-all. Right? Don't you hate a know-it-all? They're the most annoying people on the planet. They truly are. They can't be corrected. They think they know everything, right? They're always trying to correct you, even though you know you're right. Uh, but they're wise in their own eyes. They love hearing themselves speak, right? And thinking their thoughts are the most superior thoughts out there, right? But look what Proverbs twenty-eight, twelve tells us, that whoever claims to be wise is worse than a fool. Like there's a state worse than being a fool. And that's the person who claims to be wise and truly is not. Right? Wisdom ceases to be wisdom when you think you are wise in your own eyes. If you think that, you've got big problems. The wise person knows that wisdom is a gift from God. That he is the fountainhead and source of all wisdom. Wisdom doesn't start with me. Wisdom doesn't come from me. Wisdom comes from the Lord. So the antidote to this know-it-all, wise-in-my-own-eyes things is what we have already been told. Fear the Lord. You saw that in 1.7, fear the Lord, it's the beginning of, the wisdom, of wisdom, it's the foundation of wisdom and knowledge. Fear the Lord and what? Turn away from evil. Turn away from evil, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. The wise person is always conscious of God and is repulsed by evil, so they repent and turn away from it. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's a spirit of humility. A wise person is not arrogant, is not puffed up, is not haughty, is not proud. They're truly humble because they know their wisdom comes from God. The motivation is that when we trust the Lord, acknowledge Him, lean on Him, we will have healing and refreshment. You ever try in your own understanding to come through something? and You're, you're leaning on your own, not on the Lord, but on your own. It's exhausting. It's wearying. And I'm left on the other side of that completely unsure of my decision or of the outcome of a situation. But when we lean on him, there's a promise here, it. There is actual healing, refreshment, and something that renews us. Now, the verse is speaking in light of physical healing here, but it goes way beyond that here. It's not saying that we will never get sick. Well, that's not a reality that we find bearing out in Scripture at all. Because that's not the point that's in view here. There is a payoff to living rightly. There is a reward to obeying God and His commands. But when it talks about healing here, in that context of healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, this is what's called, as a literary device, a merism. It is speaking from the part to the whole. It's going from... This to that, it encompasses the whole thing. That word flesh is the Hebrew word for navel, right? Your belly button. So like from your belly button all the way inside to your bones, there will be healing and refreshment, right? What's in view here then is total healing of mind, total healing of body, not simply referring to the absence of sickness or disease, but complete well-being of mind and body, there's a promise here attached to that. We've experienced this when we've come again to the end of where our own understanding and intellect have brought us. And we just come to the, to the feet of Christ and we say, God, I, I give up. I, I throw my hands up in surrender and I cry out for God to help me. And he does. What happens? It's like a thousand pound weight comes off my shoulders. It's like I'm renewed in spirit. And strength comes upon me. Who's experienced that in their life? I know many of us have. Well, that's healing and refreshment. Listen, I believe in a God who can heal and a God of miracles. But there's more to it in view here than just a physical healing. The promise here is this total well-being. Refreshment and healing by the presence of God. This is what Solomon's teaching us here. Submit every area of your life to the Lord and He will produce wisdom in you. That wisdom will lead to well-being in all areas of life. I'm going to qualify all of this shortly here. But I want you to see those promises are there. Those rewards are there. Thirdly, here in this aspect of wholehearted devotion, now we have this, how that manifests into something outward in terms of worship. 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You ready, I'm coming with the prosperity gospel here. Come on, honor the Lord with your wealth. Pass that offering basket now. We're going to do it three or four times too, until it's all filled up to overflowing. Because this is an, this is an example now that Solomon is positing for the son to see of what that manifests like outwardly in worship. That word honor that we see there, we translate as honor, means heavy or weighty. To honor the Lord is to, uh, is to highly value God, to esteem God rightly as He is, with the worth that He truly has, the weight of glory and worth that He truly has and is owed. And one of the ways that we show how highly we value God and esteem His worth is by putting Him first in the area concerning our wealth. So, this is what he says. Honor the Lord with what? With your wealth, with your wealth. And with the first fruits, right? First fruits are symbolic of the best of, of the harvest. Numbers 18, 12. We honor the Lord by giving our best. The best of what? Well, we're not farmers, right? Nobody bought grain to the offering, we will take wine, though we do accept that. Uh, but it's not—we're not farmers right here. So, what does it mean with our wealth? Well, it's talking about our income, our finances, our resources, our our revenue. In modern terms, it means to give God first as soon as you receive your income, rather than waiting to see what's left of it on the other side. After all, bills have been paid, and you got that new toy that you wanted. Now, we have instruction in terms of, of giving in the New Testament as well, right? In first, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells us that we should give in proportion to how God has prospered us, and we're to give as we have purpose in our heart. This goes back to trusting in the Lord, you know? You know, honor the Lord with your first fruits. What, what was that command for? Did God need their grain offerings? Did, did God need the new wine offerings? No. What does God need from us? The answer is nothing. God needs nothing. God is self-sufficient. What does this demonstrate to us when we give God our best out of the wealth that he has given us? It means we depend on God. That we trust in the Lord in all areas of life. That's what happens when when we honor the Lord with our wealth. We give to the Lord and his work not because he needs our help but because we honor Him and we worship Him. It's an act of gratitude towards God who has graciously given us all things in Christ Jesus. My giving, your giving expresses confidence that God is going to do what He said He's going to do, that He's going to meet our needs. His promise is that here. Because look at the motivation that's attached to the two word pictures here. Barns and vats. Anybody have barns and vats? No, nah, I'd need some of those. Right? What are the barns and vats? Well, that represents grain and wine. Two staple industries and products, right, of, of survival of the family in ancient Israel. No grain, grain harvest goes bad, you're in for a tough time. No, no good grape harvest, that's a problem because water sources were in short supply, good water sources, right? You needed wine. So what's the promise here? You believe here that God in giving of the first fruits that God will do what he promises to do here. He's going to reward the true worshipper by sustaining their life. Now, I wouldn't know what to do with abundant barn of grain. Some of you who know what to do with that stuff, you might be happy with that. You know, but in modern terms, what does that mean? Our pantries will be stocked, our refrigerator will be overflowing. All right, if we want to kind of understand the concept here of this, but is this always true? Does our giving always produce this kind of material blessing? What do you think the answer is? <laughs> Everyone's scared to answer. Nobody wants to answer that, right? Because we know prosperity preachers love to quote this. I can't tell you how many times this verse was used to 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 receive an offering, and I've done it a time or two in my life. In Over two decades of ministry, right? Honor the Lord with your wealth. Look what's going to... You give, and God's going to do this for you. Is this always true? I believe it is, yes. Yes, in that God does promise good things for His children. He does promise that. There are promises attached to our giving. We don't have... just because we, we we run away from the prosperity gospel doesn't mean that we don't believe that God promises blessings to His children. That He promises good things to His children. Some of those good things are material blessings. We don't have to be shy about that. We don't have to be surprised by that. God can bless us with those things, and He does. It just doesn't include only material blessings, does it? No. He promises to meet our needs. He also promises that we honor him in our giving. We're storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. Paul even says that our generous sacrificial giving uh, as worship produces a harvest of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9.10 He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase what? The harvest of your homes. The harvest of your vehicles. No, right? The harvest of your righteousness. So God supplies the seed. Even what you have to give, God is the one supplying it. And He multiplies so that you can give to hoard it for yourself. No, right? To give, and that is to the increase of the harvest. A harvest of righteousness. That's souls coming into the kingdom of God. See, here's where we get stuck. On the one side, we're like, there's the false prosperity gospel. We know that. That's real. And even though we reject that, I'll talk about that more in a moment, let's not get into the place where we don't think that God actually does promise these things to his believers. Being poor is not a sign of God's favor. Just as being incredibly rich is not a sign of God's favor. We can get really trapped in this. The prosperity gospel goes off the rails because they make material blessings, right, an end in and of themselves. Everything is about the material blessings. The material blessings are the sign of God's favor, approval, and acceptance, and all these things, right? If you're blessed, if, you're, if you never suffer and you're never sick, well, then that's God's favor. And the way to get that is how? Give, right? Give, to get, right? Sowing and reaping and, you know, all of these things, right? Sow the thousand dollar, you know, seed and God will, is the hundredfold blessing will come your way. Or they'll take a scripture passage and say, you know, tithe this amount and God is obligated then to produce for you materially uh, this way. That, that's not what the scripture teaches at all. Or the use of your faith like the force to will and attract prosperity success blessing health to your life that is not scriptural at all right that is that is a false gospel most of these prosperity gospel preachers have a fundamental misunderstanding and error concerning the covenant promises made to Abraham and to his people Israel in the old covenant thinking well that all applies now in the new covenant no nope, that's not the way that works okay That's one of the other problems. The second problem is they'll take scriptures like this and do a lot of, you know, gymnastics with it and twist it up to kind of fit the paradigm that they want to talk about here in terms of of if you give this, God is then obligated to do this. Look what it says here, honor Lord with your wealth and the first fruits and automatically it's the hundredfold harvest coming to your life. This is not how Proverbs work. This is not what God has in mind or in view when he's talking about these things here. Because the trap of the prosperity gospel becomes, every single time, is that people end up loving the gifts more than the giver. That becomes their pursuit. That's their driving passion and desire. God is just a means to bring that about. That's garbage. Reject that. It's false. Too many teachers peddling that in the body of Christ today. Okay, And that's... To their damnation and the damnation of the people who sit under it and continue in it. So we reject that falsely. What I don't want you to lose sight here is that God does promise good things to His people. That He is a good Father. Do you believe that? He's a good Father. I don't want to go into that song right now. But (laughs) (laughs) He's a good Father who loves to give, give good gifts and things to His children. I hate sometimes that in my running away from one thing, I run so far in the other direction that I forget this aspect. God does love his kids. And he's promised to take care of us, to meet our needs. There's not a single moment in my life where God has not met our needs. I can't think of one. That doesn't mean we haven't gone through lean times. We sure have. Never starved. Never. <laughs> We've always had a roof over our head. Always had everything we needed in the moment. And so have you. And so have you. He blesses those who honor Him. He blesses us in many ways. Some of that is material. But not for us to hoard it up or lay it up for ourselves. But to do good with all that the Lord has blessed us with. Sometimes that blessing is going to come with adversity and trouble and suffering. But God has a purpose in that. But the Lord has promised to provide for you. You need to believe that. You need to believe that. And in believing that, you go, Lord, I let go of the stranglehold I've had on my wealth. Whatever that is. And I trust you. Obedience leads to God giving us more because he can trust us with more. And again, that should not come as a surprise to you. Amen? Amen. Lastly, this motivation now for submitting to the Lord's discipline. This is the last section here of admonition and motivation in our passage today. Again, is it teaching a prosperity gospel? Yeah, just not like the just not like the false one, All right? Because the reality is, sometimes we obey brothers and sisters, and things go really, really bad. <laughs> sometimes we obey God. And like the world falls apart underneath our feet. The rug is pulled out from under us. We go through pain and heartache. Like, why is that? Like, I thought this was automatic. I do A, God does B. I do C, God does D. Isn't that what it says here? Sometimes you give generously, sacrificially, and you lose your job. Lose your home. Your car breaks down. You still get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. This is why when we come to Proverbs, we always need to read them with the right understanding here. These things are true generally. Now. But they are ultimately true later. Every single one of them. It's not your best life now. It's your best life later and forever. This is, I think, why we end on discipline here. In this exhortation to the Son, to not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves Him whom He loves as a Father, the Son, in whom He delights. What is required for our heart to have this wholehearted, exclusive, extensive devotion to the Lord is the discipline of the Lord. We need His instruction that His discipline brings. To honor God, not just during times of prosperity, times when things are going really well in our life. Everything is hunky-dory, no, but but also in the midst of adversity. Many times that adversity comes from the Lord in the form of discipline. That word discipline means instruction, but it's a kind of instruction that only comes in the midst of hardship and trials and suffering. And the father tells the son here to embrace it. To embrace the Lord's loving discipline throughout his life. My son, do not resist it. Don't grow tired of it. This is a lifelong element of what you're going to endure. The discipline of the Lord is going to come to your life. Submit yourself to it. Why, Dad? Why must I submit myself to the Lord's discipline? Well, because the Lord's Discipline is proof that he loves you. It's proof that you're his son because he's only going to discipline a son that he loves. Now, we don't like discipline. We tend to run from it. We learn that very young, don't we? When you were disciplined as a child, did you enjoy that? Some of you might have thought your parents hated you, right? When you got that... Belt whacked across your backside, you know, or you got spanked, or you got sent to your room, or you had privileges taken away. You know, many of you maybe have said, "I hate you, mom. I hate you, dad." Right? We don't see discipline as as a blessing in our life, but this is turned on its on its head here to see that that this kind of discipline is a blessing. It's not a curse. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a blessing because God disciplines those he loves like a father disciplines the son he loves. We, we make a strong argument that parents who don't discipline their children really don't love their children. I've said it before. Parents who love their child are going to discipline and correct them. They're going to enact punitive and corrective measures so their child's learn to do what is right. But if you train your child to disobey you continually uh, with no threats of consequences, right, no punishment for doing wrong, you're discipling your child to disobey God. That's not a loving thing to do at all. But here he's saying discipline equals love. The love of the father to the son. God's discipline is a blessing. That's the motivation here. That God cares more about our holiness, more about conforming us to the image of Christ than your momentary or my momentary fleeting happiness. His discipline is not to punish us, but to correct us, to instruct us, to mature us, and to sanctify us. Corrects our sinful behavior in moments of discipline. Things that we're walking through right now in our life. And sometimes there's discipline that comes our way, not because of anything wrong we're doing in the moment, but God is doing something in us through this disciplinary measure because of something we're going to deal with in the future. And he's taking care of it right now to prepare you for that. We don't always understand it. We don't have to understand it. We're to submit ourselves to it. We need discipline. Do not despise it. Embrace it. If you're disciplined by the Lord, praise God for that. He loves you because you're his child. Homework assignment. Tonight, go home and read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. We don't have time to go through this beautiful portion of Scripture there. But there, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging believers to endure, to not grow weary, because it is for discipline that we have to endure. Because, he says, God is treating us as sons. That's awesome, man. He's treating us as sons. Hebrews five eight reminds us that even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So what does that mean? When the Lord disciplines you, you, your suffering proves your sonship. You're his child. That's assurance, brothers and sisters. In the tough times that you're walking through in life... Not that you're out of God's favor, not that you're out of His will, not that you're no longer a Christian, but that you're a child of God. And because He loves you, He's correcting you. He's shaping you. He's conforming you. He is sanctifying you. If you weren't His son, if you weren't being disciplined, that's a serious problem. That's a scary place to be. You're on a soccer team, right, and the coach makes you do all of these drills and exercises to the point where players are at the point of collapse from exhaustion, right? They might hate the coach, right? That's discipline, right? That's training, right? And it's intense and rigorous, and it puts them through the ringer. But I promise you on game day, they're going to be thankful that the coach put them through that, that he prepared them that way because now they can play with endurance and skill. This is what God does here. Hebrews twelve eleven. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's what the Lord's discipline produces in us. In the long run, he produces that because he's a loving father. He loves you enough to allow hardship at times to prepare you for something greater that may come at a later time. So he'll bless us reward us, but He doesn't always give us what we want when we want it. That's not proof of His love. But, He gives us exactly what we need when we need it. Because He loves us. Because He's shaping us for glory. I'll close asking these questions. Are you someone who wants the blessings of the Lord... Without trusting the Lord, without acknowledging the Lord, without honoring the Lord, without submitting to His discipline? Or do you trust God with your whole heart? Do you acknowledge Him in all of your decisions? Are you honoring Him with the best He has given you? Are you submitting yourself to the Lord's discipline? God blesses those whose hearts are inclined towards Him in the manner that Solomon described here for us. But don't forget, our confidence remains not in our ability to perfectly execute these things, to perfectly trust in the Lord because we won't, to perfectly acknowledge Him in all our ways because he, we won't do that. Because, be not wise in our eyes. Not will, we fail in this area. We fail in honoring the Lord with all of our first fruits. We fail to submit to His discipline. Our confidence remains in Christ alone, the perfect, obedient Son of God, whose sacrifice secures for us all of the blessings and benefits of the new covenant. That's who we look to today, brothers and sisters. For all of these things Christ has secured for us, we can freely trust the Lord, acknowledge Him, honor Him, submit to Him because Christ has gone before us perfectly doing those things on our behalf.